0: Pepperidge Farm Milano.
1: Hey, guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal pop shot abilities, and has, in fact, started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world, listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Are
0: you looking for brand new episodes of a short how stuff works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed
0: in History Class from howstuffworks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are having a little bit of an unplanned miniseries on historical events that are tied directly to ongoing news. So previously it was our recent two-parter, on the Attica prison uprising, which came up over and over in coverage of a United States prison strike that started in September. And today it is history that's connected to the Standing Rock Sioux and other indigenous peoples and the ongoing protests against the the Dakota Access Pipeline. Two nights before we recorded this episode, events in North Dakota once again made headlines. In what the authorities described as an ongoing riot, and water protectors described as a peaceful effort to dismantle a barricade that's been blocking access to a highway for several weeks, law enforcement used tear gas and other less-than-lethal weapons to try to disperse the crowd, as well as water from a fire hose or a water cannon, even though the temperature at that point was below freezing. Law enforcement originally claimed that the water was only being used to put out fires, which the protesters had said had been lit only to stay warm and not to cause damage. But later, law enforcement acknowledged that it uh, had used water to, quote, repel some of the protest activities. So given this episode's relevance to what is happening right now, we decided to move it up from its originally scheduled time later in November to the next episode we had on our calendar This history that we're talking about today happened at the same time as the United States Civil War. And it was a series of brutal and violent clashes between North America's indigenous population and the United States Army. And while the first of these started after murders were committed by a group of young Native American men, what followed became a multi-year campaign against the region's indigenous population at the hands of U.S. military forces. So parts of the history that we're telling today are truly horrific.
0: Although the history that we are talking about in this episode uh, ends in the Dakotas, it actually starts in Minnesota, Minnesota Territory was established in 1849, largely from land that had been part of the Louisiana Purchase. And when the territory was established, it was almost twice as big as the state of Minnesota is today. And at its founding, about 5,000 predominantly white settlers and 31,000 indigenous people lived there.
1: Many of the indigenous people were Dakota. The Dakota are part of the Ocheti which I have also heard speakers uh, of various Dakota dialects and languages pronounce more like Ocheti That translates into the Seven Council Fires. The Ocheti are made up of several divisions, which each have their own unique linguistic, social, political, and cultural distinctions, as well as their own histories and original territories. These
0: indigenous peoples are often collectively called the Sioux or the Great Sioux Nation. And the term Sioux actually comes from a French translation of an Ojibwe word for snake rather than a Dakota word. And for that reason, some people prefer not to use the word Sioux, but others do, and a number of tribal governments do use it to
1: refer to themselves. As is so often the case in the history of the United States, the relationship between the U.S. government and the Dakota people, as well as the other indigenous peoples of the region, was primarily governed by a series of treaties, and many of these treaties were questionable at best. The indigenous population signed many of them under duress or without being given a clear understanding of what the documents actually said. On top of that, many of the treaty's actual terms, which usually heavily favored the United States over the native population, were later undermined and even completely ignored, so that what few protections the native nations had were then eroded or stripped away entirely.
0: The series of treaties between the Dakota and the United States started in 1805. And in most of them, the Dakota ceded land to the United States in exchange for money— often a lot less money than that land was actually worth, in negotiation that included everything from coercion to threats of military force on the part of the United States.
1: In 1851, two different treaties turned over 35 million acres of land, primarily in central and southern Minnesota, to the United States. This was basically all of the Dakota's remaining territory in Minnesota. One treaty, the Treaty of traverse de Sioux was in exchange for more than one point six million dollars. The other, the Treaty of Mendota, was in change for was in exchange for a little more than one point four million dollars. However, in neither treaty were the Dakota actually getting that money itself. They were to be paid the interest on it periodically for fifty years.
0: The traverse de Sioux signing also included what came to be known as a, quote, traitor's paper, which diverted payments from the Dakota to traders, most of whom were white or part indigenous, to pay off debts. Because the trader's paper had not been read aloud or translated, many who signed it believed it was just another copy of the treaty, not a separate document, and had no idea that it involved diverting money out of their payments. Because the traders themselves were the ones who kept the records of how much money they were owed, this also created ongoing questions about
1: whether the traders were padding the bill. In addition to all of that, the treaties called for land along both the north and south sides of the Minnesota River to be set aside as a reservation for the Dakota to live on. However, once the treaties were actually approved by the U.S. Senate, the provisions for the reservation were removed, This left the Dakota with nowhere to go. Eventually, President Millard Fillmore agreed that the Dakota could live on that reservation land, but only until white settlers needed it.
0: The United States decided it needed that land north of the river in 1858, leading to another treaty. However, white settlers rushed into the area before that treaty was ratified, including a portion of it that was supposed to be set aside for the Dakota and many refused to leave. Once again, the payment for this piece of land was a fraction of what it was actually worth.
1: Following this series of treaties in 1862, about 6,500 Dakota were living in a narrow strip of land south of the Minnesota River, which was divided into an upper and lower agency. And many of them, especially in the lower agency, were starving. The previous winter had been hard, and even though it was now late summer, the season's harvests had not been enough to really support the population, and they definitely were not enough to prepare for the upcoming winter.
0: There was no game to hunt on the reservation itself, and the white population of Minnesota had increased dramatically to more than 170,000 people. This was thanks in part to government incentives like the Homestead Act. So competition for hunting around the reservation which the Dakota weren't really supposed to be doing, was fierce.
1: I should note that it wasn't literally 100% white population, but in terms of newcomers, it was a much, much bigger population than it had been even a decade before. On top of this huge shortage of food, in August of 1862, the annuity payment from the government that was due to the Dakota from those 1851 treaties had been delayed. So that meant the people living on the reservation didn't have money to buy food either.
0: Dakota leader Little Crow went to Thomas Galbraith, the Indian agent responsible for the lower agency, to ask for help. In his words, quote, We have waited a long time. The money is ours, but we cannot get it. We have no food, but here these stores are filled with food. We ask that you, the agent, make some arrangements so we can get food from the stores, or else we may take our own way to keep
1: ourselves from starving. When men are hungry, they help themselves. Galbraith declines to order distributions on credit, and in the words of trader Andrew Myrick, quote, So far as I am concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass.
0: Things came to a head on August 17th, 1862, when four young Dakota men killed five white settlers. It's not exactly clear what led to these murders. The story told most often is that they were stealing eggs from outside the house where the settlers were, and an argument started that escalated into violence.
1: After returning to their uh, their village, the four young men convinced Little Crow to declare war. And this was something that Little Crow was really reluctant to do. But he also recognized that they were sure to face retribution, especially since some of the white people who had been killed were women. He assembled a fighting force and raids, many of them against civilian communities and not military targets, started the next day. Soon, the death toll from these attacks rose to about 200 white settlers killed and more than 200 more taken hostage. The fighting spread from there. It's estimated
0: that about 1,000 of the Dakota people participated, and some of them under duress. Others, however, organized an active resistance, leading evacuations of settlers from the area and forming the Dakota Peace Party to oppose the war and try to negotiate for the release of the hostages.
1: When Minnesota's governor, Alexander Ramsey, heard of what was going on, he commissioned Henry H. Sibley to lead a military force to western Minnesota to try to take care of it. Sibley had no military experience. He was a fur trader, so he did have connections to some of the Dakota through that trade. But his lack of strategic experience meant that he wasn't really able to efficiently pursue the Dakota fighting force or to protect the white population. By this point, the area's white settlers were just in a complete panic.
0: Dakota raids on civilian settlements and attacks on forts and other military outposts continued until September 23rd, when Sibley's force defeated Little Crow's. Little Crow and his force fled westward the following day, although Little Crow would eventually return to the Dakotas, where he would be shot and killed in 1863.
1: On September 24th, the Dakota Peace Party surrendered the hostages and the war came to an end. By then, it had gone on for six weeks, and it was horrible. During that time, more than 600 white people had been killed, overwhelmingly civilians, with a huge number of those being children under the age of 10. Between 75 and 100 Dakota soldiers had died, and more than 70 white soldiers. However... What happened after this heaped one
0: atrocity after another onto multiple Native American peoples, including some who had absolutely nothing to do with any of this. We will talk about it uh, and what happened after the Dakota people moved to South Dakota after we pause for a sponsor break.
1: This Christmas, give the gift of Carnivore Club. Carnivore Club is a monthly subscription to premium artisanal meat like Italian salami, Spanish chorizo, duck breast prosciutto, and delicious pancetta. It is the secret to going from, oh, thank you, to, whoa, thank you. I'm not kidding. We just got one of these boxes at our house, and it was full of uh, a number of humanely raised, delicious, uh, cured pork products I ate prosciutto and cheese for breakfast today. It was great. So now for a limited time during this holiday season, Carnivore Club is getting wilder than ever. For foodies who aren't easily impressed, you have the option to upgrade your classic box to the new exotic meat box, which gives you the chance to experience cured meats like kangaroo, emu, alligator, and more. And Carnivore Club has something for everyone as long as you actually eat meat. Carnivore Club has both one-time gift orders and long-term subscriptions available. And if you go to carnivoreclub.co now and place your order using our promo code HISTORY15, you'll get 15% off. You can finally win at giving Christmas presents with the gift of unforgettable cured meats. Head to carnivoreclub.co to discover the latest and greatest on offer from the only club for true meat lovers. Use the promo code HISTORY15 to get 15% off. It's the best Christmas present idea you've ever stolen from a podcast. After the fighting between the Dakota and the U.S. Army had ended, government forces captured a number of Dakota men suspected of being involved and put them on trial. These trials were speedy, and they were heavily biased, with nearly 400 of them happening in only six weeks, and the accused having no legal representation. 303 men were sentenced to death, and 16 were sentenced to prison.
0: President Abraham Lincoln intervened to prevent all 303 from being summarily executed, after Henry Whipple, the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, went to him to explain what had led up to the violence. Lincoln recommended a punishment that would deter further violence, but without, quote, so much severity as to be real cruelty. He narrowed the execution order to cover only two men who had been found guilty of rape, plus 37 who had participated not just in battles against military forces, but in the massacre of civilians.
1: One man was given a last-minute reprieve and the other 38 were executed in a public mass hanging on December 26th, 1862. This was the largest mass execution in United States history. All the bodies were buried in a mass grave, but they were shortly dug up to be used as medical cadavers. Two of the men, it was later discovered, were hanged in error, and one of those was just a case of mistaken identity.
0: The following April, the condemned prisoners who had not been executed were sent to a military prison in Davenport, Iowa, where 120 of them died due to disease and poor living conditions. President Andrew Johnson would order the release of the survivors on March 22, 1866, after which point they were moved to a reservation in Nebraska.
1: But the consequences of the war were not just confined to the men who had been found guilty of participating in it. On November 7, 1862, about 1,700 Dakota, most of them women, children, and elderly people, were removed via forced march to Fort Snelling on the Mississippi River. Along the way, they were attacked by a mob of white settlers where many of them were beaten, and one of the babies was killed. The surviving Dakota were then held in internment camps.
0: In February and March of 1863, Congress revoked all of the treaties between the United States and the Dakota and passed the Dakota Expulsion Act, which made it illegal for Dakota to live in Minnesota. It wasn't the only Expulsion Act that was passed at around this time, A Winnebago Removal Act was also passed in February of 1863.
1: So in May of 1863, Minnesota's surviving Dakota, along with about 2,000 Ho-Chunk who had not been part of this war at all, were forcibly expelled from the state and moved west into Dakota territory in what's now South Dakota. The Dakota Expulsion Act has never been repealed.
0: The U.S. government and local authorities were concerned that the Dakota would retaliate especially after some smaller raids and skirmishes crossed back over the border into Minnesota. And in spite of the executions, the expulsion from Minnesota, the internment camps, and all of that, there were still people who had lost family members in the Dakota War who wanted further revenge and retribution.
1: As a result, two different expeditions moved into Dakota territory in 1863, One was led by General Sibley, who crossed into Dakota Territory from Minnesota, and the other was led by General Alfred Sully, who followed the Missouri River up from the south. The plan was for the two forces to catch the remaining Dakota in a pincer from two different directions. But this
0: plan did not work out, though. Uh, The river was drier than normal, which caused a delay in General Sully's riverboat journey northward. By the time he got to the upper Missouri area in what's now North Dakota, General Sibley had already moved through the area and then gone on.
1: However, on September 3rd, 1863, 300 men led by Colonel Albert E. House, who were part of Sully's force, spotted an encampment of Native Americans at Whitestone Hill. This was a really large, multi-tribal gathering of people who were hunting, trading, celebrating, and preparing for winter. They had about 400,000 pounds of bison meat drying on racks, and about half of the men, when he spotted them, were away from the encampment hunting.
0: Although some of the people there were refugees from the Dakota War, none of them had actually participated in the fighting there. Instead, they were predominantly Yanktine, as well as Hunkpapa, Lakota, and Sihasapa Lakota, which are also known as Blackfeet. Like the Dakota, all of these are part of the Seven Council Fires.
1: House sent a Métis trader named Frank Lafremboise and another man back to Sully to get reinforcements. While they were gone, House told the assembled camp that he wanted to talk, and he asked them to surrender all of their chiefs. Although they did offer to send some of the chiefs, they didn't offer to send all of them. And House, not sure whether these particularly these particular chiefs were actually important or not, refused that offer.
0: This led to about three hours of negotiations, ending in a standoff. During all this time, many in the encampment were packing up and preparing to leave. It was toward the end of the gathering anyway, and it just seemed safer to go. Preparations became even more hurried when they spotted Sully and his force approaching from about a mile away.
1: When he got there, which was as the sun was setting, Sully found House attempting to surround the encampment, although he didn't really have enough men to do it. Even though a man named Patanka, or Big Head, was waving a white flag, Sully and his force charged through the middle of the encampment. Most of the people who were killed in this first charge were women, children, and elderly men, and his companies split up and then tried to surround the fleeing people, including many who were trying to escape down a, near, a nearby ravine.
0: Efforts to cut off and encircle the fleeing people included cavalry and artillery, and And while some managed to scatter in other directions, many fled into a ravine that then became the scene of a massacre. Estimates range from 100 to 400 Native Americans killed and about 150 surrendered. Because it was dark by the time the shooting was over, many who were wounded wound up being left untended overnight. The U.S. Army saw about 20 fatalities, many of whom had been caught in crossfire.
1: Then... Under Sully's command, the soldiers gathered up everything that was useful from the encampment, wagons, food, tools, teepees, and all of that drying bison meat, and they set it on fire. In the
0: words of soldier Effie Caldwell, quote, Sully ordered all the property destroyed, tepees, buffalo skins, and all their things, including tons and tons of dried buffalo meat and tallow. It was gathered in wagons, piled in a hollow, and burned, and the melted tallow ran down the valley into a stream. Hatchets, camp kettles, and all things that would sink were thrown into a small lake.
1: This obviously left everyone who had been gathered there completely destitute. And on the next day, Sully sent scouts to round up uh, people who had escaped. He took all the prisoners he found to Crow Creek, which was essentially a POW camp turned into a reservation. Conditions at Crow Creek were deplorable, with the primary source of food being a mix of entrails, flour, beans, and meat of questionable quality, cooked together in a cottonwood vat, which became known as cottonwood soup. A lot of people died there from starvation and digestive diseases.
0: On September 5th, the fighting continued at Apple Creek with the surviving Native force pushing the U.S. cavalry back until they could cross the water, getting women and children to safety.
1: Ongoing skirmishes continued until July of 1864, which saw an incredibly similar encounter between the U.S. Army under Sully and the Native American forces in the Kildir Mountains. On July 23rd, with the aid of artillery, the Army killed about 100 indigenous people and then once again burned all of their food, equipment, and supplies. Treaties, signed in October of 1865,
0: officially ended the fighting.
1: All of these events also uh, eventually led into the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, which we talk about in more detail in our podcasts on Calamity Jane. That treaty established the Great Sioux Reservation, which included territory known as the Black Hills. But after gold was found in the Black Hills, the United States went back on that agreement. This eventually went to the Supreme Court in the United States versus Sioux Nation of Indians, in which the court ordered that the United States financially compensate the Sioux Nation. But the nation refused that payment, saying what it wanted was the originally promised land. And we're going to talk about how
0: perspectives on this incident changed over the next 100 years. But first, we are going to take a little break and hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. In some ways, we're all losers. I know that's difficult to hear, but it's maybe not what you're thinking. What I'm saying is that we all have a tendency to misplace things. Newsweek reports the average American wastes 55 minutes a day looking for things that they own, but they cannot find. That's me, for sure. Just scrabbling around. Uh, I know I do it all the time. I have the key problem. We've all discussed it. <laughs> Uh, Tracker, however, makes losing things a thing of the past, and I'll tell you how to get one for free in just a moment. So Tracker is a coin-sized device that locates your misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. So just pair your Tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find that thing's precise location with the tap of a button. It is that simple. So if you lose your phone, you can press the button on your Tracker, and your phone rings even when it's on silence. Tracker is finding more than a million misplaced items each day. Order yours, and you will never lose any again. Listeners to this show get a free Tracker Bravo with any order. Go to the tracker.com, t h e tracker.com and enter promo code history. The hardest thing you're ever going to have to find is their website. So again, go to the tracker.com right now. Enter promo code history for your free Tracker Bravo with any order. Again, that's the tracker.com promo code history. <laughs>
1: In the immediate aftermath of the Whitestone Hill Massacre, the U.S. Army's position was that it was an important and decisive victory over the Dakota, which, as a reminder, was not even the people who were really there. Sully and his men were praised for their efforts, and in Sully's word, quote, it is to be regretted that I could not have had an hour or two more of daylight, for I feel sure if I had... I could have annihilated the enemy. As it was, I believe I can safely say I gave them one of the most severe punishments that the Indian have ever received.
0: But in November of 1863, Sam Brown, who was working as an interpreter at Crow Creek, wrote a letter to his father in which he said, I hope you will not believe all that is said of Sully's successful expedition against the Sioux. I don't think he ought to brag of it at all, because it was what no decent man would have done. He pitched into their camp and just slaughtered them, worse a great deal than what the Indians did in 1862. He killed very few men and no hostile ones prisoners. And now he returns saying that we need fear no more, for he has wiped out all hostile Indians from Dakota. If he had killed men instead of women and children, then it would have been a success and the worse of it. They had no hostile intention whatever. The Nebraska 2nd pitched into them without orders, while the Iowa 6th were shaking hands with them on the other side. They even shot their own men.
1: Then, in 1914 or 1915, a man named Takes His Shield, who had survived the massacre, directed Richard Cottonwood in creating a pictograph. This was the first real documentation of the Native American's perspective on what had happened, although most interpretations of it today are based on the writing of Reverend Aaron McGaffey Bede, who is an Episcopal missionary, which was done in 1932. Bede acknowledged that his ability to interpret it was not nearly as robust as an actual member of the tribes would be.
0: The pictograph, which we will link to in the show notes, depicts a large camp of two groups of Sioux, one who typically fought with spears and the other who fought with arrows, all camped together in one circle beside a small lake. Then a large army of mounted soldiers sweeps through the camp. Most try to flee, with a woman hitching a travois to a horse and using it to pull children away.
1: The pictograph continues to show the soldiers sweeping through and surrounding targets, who in turn are not trying to fight back. They are trying to flee and get women and children to safety. The pictograph definitely shows the event as a massacre, not a battle, with none of the indigenous people depicted as fighting. According to Bede's interpretation, the pictograph only shows the portions of the incident that happened in daylight, since after dark, the events could be heard and not seen.
0: In more recent times, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, Standing Rock Sioux tribal historian whose land is home to the sacred stone camp protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, has researched, written, and spoken extensively about the history of this battle and how it fits into the greater history of the Standing Rock Sioux and other divisions of the Sioux Nation. In a series of videos, she notes that at least three quarters of Sully's expedition were people who had family members who had been killed in the Dakota uprising and were seeking revenge. Another thing that she notes is how much effort was put into trying to get women and children to safety, tying them to horses and dogs and trying to get the animals to simply flee the camp with them.
1: Allard is descended from Mary Big Moccasin, who was nine during the Whitestone Hill massacre and was shot in the leg or hip, but survived. Uh,
0: so that's not the most fun episode we've ever done. Uh, well, I feel almost guilty going, hey, let's talk about listener mail. Well, and the, our
1: listener mail is also a, a little more on the serious side today. It is from Tamari. Tamari says, Dear Holly and Tracy, my name's Tamari. And a, as a keen Stuff You Missed in History class listener, I've often thought about writing in with episode suggestions. In spite of the fact that you have a long enough list as it is but today my letter takes a different note. I know this is a dark time for anyone who believes in truth and justice in the face of oppression, fear, and hatred. I wanted to thank both of you for providing myself and the other podcast listeners with knowledge and perspective on historical injustices. If I hadn't heard your episodes about the Tulsa and New Orleans race riots and the ongoing mistreatment of activists who should have been seen as heroes in their time, like Bayard Rustin and Sylvia Rivera... I doubt very much I would have realized the strength and support people need to overcome ignorance. The most acceptable story format of linear progress, good overcoming evil, is not a simple reality. What history has shown us is that every time humanity makes a social achievement, it can also counter this change with hateful backlash, driven by what people are most afraid of. Yet in the face of this, it is a dedication to carrying on, spreading truth and generating thought and empathy for other humans, Which will always triumph. Thank you for making us stronger and wiser by the dedication you show to the subjects of your podcast, and for always being a a bright beacon of education to show us the way out of darkness. She she thanks us then, and says she's always looking forward to our next episode, uh, and then suggests a couple of episode suggestions. So first of all, thank you to Mari.
0: I'm trying to pull myself together to say that's one of the nicest things someone's ever said to me.
1: Me too. So Tamari sent us this mail on a day. I will candidly say you and I were both having a real hard time. So thank you, Tamari, <laughs> uh, for sending us the kind of message that that makes us feel like the work we are doing is important. But the other reason that I wanted to read this message today is to say candidly something that we have been doing Since Holly and I came on to the show in 2013, which we haven't really talked specifically about, which is selecting episodes that are either tied to things that are specifically happening right now, which today's episode obviously does, but also episodes that shine more light onto the bigger arc of what's happening in the world, and especially in the United States, which is is where we live, the first time I think we ever did that, we we came on the show in March of 2013, and the first episode that that fit into this was in April. So the following month, when we did our two part series on Loving versus Virginia, which was a story about injustice and inco- of overcoming injustice, that we talked about because it kept uh, being cited as a precedent in Supreme Court cases about same-sex marriage. Um, I just want to say, we are going to continue to do episodes like this. We're going to continue to talk about the things that shed light onto why the world is the way it is and the things that we as a nation are struggling with. We are still going to do weird, silly episodes like Marjorie. also, (laughs) you know, we will still have all of our unearthed episodes at the end of the year we will still have stuff that we think is just goofy and cool, but we are also definitely going to continue to talk about things that are related to universal human rights that everyone deserves, uh, and to the the idea that justice is important and is something that the United States as a nation should be standing for. So thank you again so much, Tamari. Again, this was. Uh, a so, note, we got on, on a real hard day, and it, it made that real hard day a little bit better. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, uh, we're at history Podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash myst history, and we're on Twitter at myst history. Our Tumblr is com. We're on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History, and Instagram at in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and learn about just about anything your heart desires. You can come to our website, MistInHistory.com. We will put a link to that pictograph in the show notes, all of our other research on this episode in the show notes. Uh, there will, of course, in the list of sources be the links to the videos we were talking about toward the end, all of that. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MistInHistory.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling, amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.